and amen. We'll go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 7. And as always, we bailed you out. If you forgot your copy of God's Word, it's on the back of the bulletin. And uh, it's no secret that racial tensions in our country are extremely high. From Mike Brown to Trayvon Martin to Ferguson to Charlottesville to the game Knockout that's being played by teenagers today to the NFL protests. I mean, America is basically one huge racial pressure cooker right now. I'm not that old. I'm 39 years old. And I know I haven't lived that long. But I can never remember a time in my life when racial tensions were, were more... It just seems like any day anything could happen. It seems like we're on the edge of some cliff we're about to jump off of. And it's very troubling to me personally as a Christian. But I think what's more troubling to me than even the racial tension in our country is this. The organization, the institution that could be doing the greatest good for this issue is largely remaining silent. And I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about the church. Amen. I got one amen this morning. The church is remaining largely silent because, listen, it's, it, this is a sticky issue. This is the kind of issue that can get you fired in a church. It can lose you friends to address this. And so I think a lot of people kind of stick their head in the sand and they don't want to talk about anything because they don't want to offend anyone. And they don't want to get involved and they'd rather say, you know what, let's let this pass, let's not say anything at all, and eventually this will run its course. I see the American church largely doing that. They are silent on the issue of racial reconciliation. And I think few churches have their prophetic courage to stand up and actually speak to the issue. Now, I've been a Christian for 15 years. I've been saved. God saved me 15 years ago. I've been to seminary. I've been part of churches that I would consider to be amazing churches, great churches. I've been to Sunday morning services, Sunday night services, Wednesday night services, evangelism services, chapel services. I've sat through thousands of worship services. Do you know how many sermons I've ever heard that address the topic of racial reconciliation? In 15 years of being a Christian, one. I've heard one sermon. It was in this pulpit last year in this church. And I've been part of some great churches. I would consider them to be wonderful churches. But I think largely the American church sort of sticks their head in the sand and they don't want to address with real world issues. And I think honestly... The reason why we see the millennials, you know, the younger generation not coming to church anymore is because when they do come to church, we don't talk about real life issues. We talk about the sweet by and by of heaven where one day we're going to be on a cloud, you know, playing a harp, you know, it's going to be peace and safety and security. And that's true. But churches don't tie that reality in the future to the present day. They don't ever tie it in and connect the dots. And so, you know, what young people do is they say, you know what, we're out of here. This does not touch my everyday life. And so they lead. And so I think the church is largely guilty of what Brian Loritz calls racial passivity. And uh, if you're not familiar with the preacher Brian Loritz, he, read a, he, he wrote a great book. It's called Right Culture, Wrong Color. It's a great book. You can get it on Amazon. But Brian Loritz says, he says, we're largely guilty of racial passivity, which is just basically another form of hatred. I know those are strong words because some people are thinking, I I'm not racist. I'm not part of the KKK. I'm not part of the Black Panthers. I'm not part of some organization trying to, you know, take up arms and take matters into our own hands. I I that's not me. Listen, that may be the case. 
But the opposite of love isn't just overt violence. The opposite of love is also indifference. It's indifference. In fact, the Jewish concept of hatred is not so much a feeling of of anger and violence. The Jewish concept of hatred is actually detachment, indifference. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now listen. Is Jesus telling us that we are supposed to have this anger and resentment and bitterness towards our own mom and dad? No. If that's what he was teaching, he's actually going against the entire book of Proverbs. He'd actually be a heretic and he wouldn't be the Messiah. That is not what Jesus means by hating your father and your mother. He's saying this, allegiance to me comes first. That's what he's saying. You better count every other allegiance in your life behind my allegiance. And so if I command you to do something and mom and dad command you to do the opposite, you follow me and you ignore mom and dad. Jesus is saying allegiance to me and my plan for your life comes first. And so you have to be willing to leave everything and follow me. You even have to be willing to deny yourself and leave the own allegiance to your own life and your own interests. That's what Jesus is saying here. Because listen, the Jewish concept of hatred is the idea of detachment. And so anyone, therefore, who is detaching themselves emotionally and ignoring another people group or a situation, and and listen, and they're indifferent to it, that's actually manifesting a form of hatred. So often we think we're not racist because we're not part of the Ku Klux Klan. Here's the deal. If we are indifferent to the plight of African Americans and minorities in in our society... In our city, that's a form of racism and hatred. You know, it's kind of like this. If I I went home today and I packed up all my belongings, threw them in a suitcase, and I moved into a hotel room, and I walked out on my wife and my three sons, if I did that and I never answered my wife's phone calls again, Every time she called, just went right to voicemail. And I never called and checked in. And I never talked about them. And someone confronted me one day and said, Hey, man, listen, why do you hate your family, bro? And I was like, hate them? I don't hate my family. I haven't started like some anti-Lauren campaign, you know? I haven't sent pipe bombs to the house. I'm not blogging on Facebook about how evil she is and rotten. I'm not not manifesting hatred. Would you believe me? No. Why, Why would you not believe me? Because I have completely detached myself from the issue. And I've walked away from a responsibility that I have to my family. Because detachment is a form of hatred. And that is why Rabbi Abraham Heschel, one of the men that marched with Dr. Martin Luther King, he said this, the only thing worse than hatred is indifference. The only thing worse than hatred is indifference. And friends, when we look around at the landscape in our country and this racial pressure cooker, you would hope that churches would stand up and at least provide some clarity on the issue and speak to it, but you don't see that. And I think the church is largely failing in this matter. I mean, the church should not be aloof towards racial reconciliation. We should be on the front lines. 
And that is what our text is all about this morning. Believe it or not, our text is all about racial reconciliation this morning. And we began a brand new series last week, if you weren't here. And this new series is called No Second Class Kingdom Citizens. And this section of Mark chapter 7, is, it's amazing. It's so rich because it's all about Jesus teaching everyone that there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. No matter your gender, we saw that last week. No matter your gender, your tax bracket, your ethnicity, no matter who you are or where you're from, the kingdom of God is for you. It's for everyone. And so there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. None. And right now, in, in the, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on a mission trip. He's taking a mission trip. And he left Israel, and verse 31 says, he went through the regions of Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis. He went through all these different areas. He left Israel. He's on a mission trip. And here's the thing. I know we're 21st century Americans, and so these cities don't really, they don't jar us like they would have jarred people 2,000 years ago. I mean, when they heard that Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis, they would have been shook to their core because here's the deal. Just take the city of Tyre, for example. Tyre and Israel were arch enemies. They had major beef. I mean, they had, you know, Biggie Smalls, Tupac type drama. It was crazy. And so basically, uh, the, the city of Tyre, the nation of Tyre, really, and the Israelites, they had major drama, and the, the city of Tyre was actually settled by a group of people known as the Canaanites, okay? The Canaanites. And the Canaanites and the Israelites had major drama, so much so that Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, he lived 2,000 years ago, he actually lived during the time of Jesus and the apostles, he actually wrote about Jesus. He's not some fictionary creature, you know. Jesus was a real person. Josephus wrote that the inhabitants of Tyre are notoriously our most bitter enemies. So when Jesus goes to the nation of Tyre, he's actually visiting his enemies as a Jewish man. And so the beef between Tyre and, and Israel started a long, long, long time ago. In fact, it started you know, over 3,500 years ago. It all started when God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, in the Old Testament, you'll read through the Old Testament, you'll discover the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, right? They're slaves. God walks in, says, let my people go, shows 10 manifestations of his power, and then brings the children of Israel out. And, and God tells them, listen, I'm taking you to a beautiful place. It's called the promised land, the land of milk and honey and gluten-free bread and all that kind of stuff. It's awesome, okay? And he takes them to the promised land. And there's only one problem, though, with the promised land. Somebody already lived there. The Canaanites lived there. The Canaanites had actually settled the promised land before the Israelites ever got there. But God liberated the Jews, brought them to the promised land, and said, go in and evict and kick out all of the Canaanites. I'm not making this up. This is actually in the book. Right here in Deuteronomy chapter 20. God says, In the cities of these people, the cities of the Canaanites, that the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. And he goes on and lists a whole bunch of groups of people that live in the promised land. And he says, listen, the reason I want you to wipe them out is because I don't want you to learn their abominable practices. 
Their society is so debauched and jacked up, I don't want you to learn any of their ways, so go in and chop them up. That's exactly what God told the nation of Israel. And so they did. They went into the the promised land. They evicted all the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, they fled up north to what is present-day Lebanon. And you could see Israel right below. And it started this long war over whose land it is that exists even till the present day. It's still going on today. But you can see Tyre and Sidon, they fled to the north and that is where they live till this present day. And so, basically, God told Israel, go in, evict the Canaanites. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but how in the world is that just for God to do that? It seems like God is commanding Israel to be this bully, to just go in and drive people out of their own land. How is this fair? Why would God allow them, in fact, why would God command them to do this? Perhaps that's the question that you're asking. Well, the answer goes even further back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 9 and the story of a man named Noah. You know, Noah is a guy who, he was like the original doomsday prepper, okay? He built a 900-foot wooden ark in his backyard before God flooded the entire earth and killed every living, breathing thing, except for those that were on that ark. And you remember, Noah was this righteous and this holy guy. Righteous and holy man. But every righteous and holy person always has a skeleton somewhere in their closet. And Noah's skeleton actually came after the flood, not before the flood. And in Genesis chapter 9, we actually read about Noah's skeleton. Check out what Noah did did after after the flood. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark, after the waters receded, Noah had three sons, all right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it says, Ham was the father of Canaan. Ham was the father of the Canaanites. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. That sounds awfully interesting, huh? And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So basically, Noah, he he plants a wine vineyard. He drinks the fermented juice, he gets overheated, as sometimes happens when you drink too much, and you know he, he stripped down butt naked and, and fell asleep in his tent. You know, my uncle does this every Thanksgiving, right? Every <laughs> something like this, you know. He wears a polo shirt with every beer. Another button goes off until about 6 p.m. He's entire, he's bare chested. He's walking around. He's like, it's hot in here. Turn the air on. We all got sweater vests on. We're freezing. That's what happened to Noah. Drank way too much and he fell asleep naked. This is the part of the Bible that's not in your children's storybook Bible, I know. Um, But here's what happened. Noah had one son that was kind of perverted. And this is what happened. And Ham, the father of Canaan, second time it's told us that, he's the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. He went out and he's like, dude, he's like, dad's naked in there, man. You gotta check this out. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and did the moonwalk backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not want to see their father's nakedness. They're like, nah, dude, I don't want any part of that. I'm not into that. And so they covered dad's body. They covered his shame, okay? And when Noah awoke, he didn't take too kindly to this. Look at this. He put his clothes on, first of all, and second of all, he did this. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, listen to this, cursed be Canaan. 
A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Ham is the father of the Canaanites. Shem is actually the father of the Israelites. So he curses Ham and the Canaanites, and he blesses Shem and the Israelites. Ham had no respect for his father, and so his father curses him. And I know, again, we read the Bible and we're like, this is a little bit harsh, man. A dad cursing his son for seeing him naked? I mean, I've seen worse in a men's locker room. You know, some of y'all are thinking that. Obviously, no one here has a men's membership to a gym because every time you walk into a men's locker room, there will without fail be an old dude sitting there butt naked reading the paper. It doesn't matter what gym you go to or what kind of time of day, there will be a guy sitting there with his legs crossed without a care in the world reading the paper butt naked in the gym, locker room, in the men's locker room. It's serious. It is traumatizing. But anyway, we think, what is, what's the big deal? We, we think, what is, I'm serious now, folks. It's like gym protocol. It's like we got sanitation wipes, check. We got Nautilus machines, check. We have some creepy old dude to sit in the men's locker room all day naked. It's a real deal. But anyway, we think, what's, what's, what's the problem here? He saw his dad naked. Listen, we are so over-sexualized in this culture, we, nothing alarms us anymore. I mean, people walk around with more out than in today, right? And, and so we as Christians even are so desensitized, we can finish our Bible study and then say, hey, what do y'all want to do? Hey, let's watch Game of Thrones. Let's just put it on, you know? And we turn anything on. I mean, Game of Thrones, it's, it's like the most debauched show. People walking around butt naked all the time. Graphic scenes. I don't watch it. I don't watch it because I've read the blogs about why you shouldn't watch it. It's terrible. But our filter is so jacked up, nothing even, nothing jars us anymore. We're so calloused in our over-sexualized culture. So much so that people are like, Game of Thrones, well, what's the big deal? It's a TV show. I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, the reason you don't see anything wrong with it is because your, your mind is so calloused, your conscience is so calloused, that you no longer see anything wrong with watching something so debauched. It's like if my wife was ironing something and she, you know, she walked away for a second and I walked up and picked up a hot iron and stuck it to my tongue and held it there for like 30 seconds and you heard the sizzle like, and yeah, ow, I took it off. I would not be able to taste anything for a while, right? I mean, you could feed me anything. A rotten ostrich egg, a kale, like you can, anything, and I'm like shoveling it down. I'm like, it's good, it's great, man. I don't see anything wrong with it. The reason you don't see anything wrong with it is because your spiritual taste buds, your conscience has been so seared over that it's no, long, it's no longer sensitive to these things. And we lived in like this over-sexualized culture. And this is, just, this is just a side note here. This is for free, but please don't be entertained by things that Jesus died for. We've been so desensitized to nakedness and we read stuff like this and we're like, man, the Bible's so antiquated and out of date and da-da-da-da-da. Well, the Bible's clear. Your nakedness is something extremely, extremely, extremely sacred, especially if you're a young person. Listen, your nakedness is for you and your spouse only. It's extremely sacred. God takes our nakedness very seriously. I mean, so, God takes our nakedness so sacredly that God, this is, blows me away when I think about it, God didn't even want there to be steps on the way up to the altar. Listen to this, Exodus 20. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. God's like, hey, listen, when y'all build the altar, just make sure that thing is on level ground, okay? Because back in those days, you know, men, they, they wore long robes. And they didn't wear underwear because of those hot summer nights, okay? 
And so God didn't want there to be a swift breeze or something blow through because you could see a man tiny. God's like, nope, nope, I don't want that. You don't want that. Let's, no, let's put the altar on level ground, okay? Because God takes nakedness very, very seriously. And so Ham mocks his father's nakedness. And what Noah does is he curses his son. And this is what Noah did. He curses Ham, the father of the Canaanites. And now they must serve the descendants of Shem, who are the Israelites. So this is, this is very important. You won't see this on CNN or Fox News. They never get out Genesis 9 and explain whose land it is. They don't, okay? So this is very important because all these battles go back to things in the Bible. And so it was completely just and right and holy for God to send Israel into the promised land and evict the Canaanites, okay? They walked in. They're like, all right, y'all got to get out. You know what your perverted granddaddy did years ago. Now get on out of here, right? And they kicked him out. And they ran up north, they settled in the area of Lebanon. Okay, that's all, that's all for free, that's all background. Here's the deal. When Jesus goes to the nation of Tyre and Sidon, okay, he is going to an area that is fraught with racial tension. He's an Israelite. And so when Jesus visits these areas in Mark 7, he's actually visiting enemy territory. He wouldn't just need a passport to get there. Jesus would have to jump that fence, big barbed wire fence. That's actually a picture from present day Lebanon and Israel. He'd actually have to go into enemy territory. That's where he's going on this mission trip. Because as a Jewish man, Jesus is healing, he's basically healing his enemies. People that could take up a rifle and turn around and shoot him or hurt him. He's actually empowering a foreign military alliance, basically, by healing this man. This is, this is showing mercy to someone that could do you a lot of harm. And this is so countercultural today to how we think about refugees from other countries or whatever it is. We are so American and nationalistic even more than we are Christian. We don't like the idea of empowering people that can hurt us or showing mercy to them. But what blows me away is that Jesus heals this man. And what blows me away more is how he heals this guy. Look at this. Look at the intimacy here. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. These are, these are foreigners, enemies of Israel, saying, please heal, please heal our buddy. Right? And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. Now that is pr that's pretty intimate. <laughs> what do you say? Tommy and I are best friends, have been for over 10 years. I have never stuck my fingers into his ears, and I never plan to, okay? Unless <laughs> I'm giving him a wet willy, right? Remember those? <laughs> he's, he's getting pretty close here. And after spitting, he spit into his hands, and then he touched the guy's tongue. I mean, that's, <laughs> this is gross evangelism here, right? He spit and he goes, he starts grabbing the guy's tongue, okay? And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Now, listen, Jesus didn't stand like 10 feet away and was like, yeah, you can come into the kingdom, come on in, all right? No, he got up near the guy. And they exchanged bodily fluids. I mean, he's getting up near an enemy an unclean Gentile from another country. And so by Jesus healing the man this way, he is identifying with this people group. The Canaanites were supposed to serve the Israelites. This is an Israelite jumping the fence and serving a Canaanite. 
It's extremely countercultural. And the reason that Jesus, just FYI, the reason Jesus did this, he wasn't trying to be gross. This guy was deaf, couldn't speak. And so Jesus was, was communicating the way this guy would understand. He's saying, I'm going to fix your ears and I'm going to fix your tongue. That's what he's saying. That's why he did this. And what happened is uh, the guy's miraculously healed. And his ears were opened, tongue was released, he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one because if you tell someone to say a secret, they always tell everyone, so that's what Jesus did. And uh, you know about this in church, right? Don't tell anyone, right? But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. That's the way it always goes. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He does all things well. We saw last chapter in chapter 6, Jesus goes to his own hometown, and he he basically gets taken to a cliff and almost thrown off and killed. And they actually hate him and say he's demon-possessed. And yet he goes to the enemy territory, and they say he's done all things well. Rejected by his own people, accepted wholeheartedly by the enemies of Israel. And Jesus demonstrates with this close, personal, intimate encounter with an enemy of Israel that the kingdom of God is open to all people. That's the main point of this text. Jesus is an equal opportunity savior. R.L. Cooper says it this way. He said, Jesus demonstrates through the healing of a deaf man that there are no barriers, racial, cultural, or physical, that are beyond the grace and goodness of God. That's good, isn't it? It's all right here in, in, in Mark chapter 7. And this is where we shift gears because this, this reflects what the church should be. I mean, we are the kingdom of God on earth right here. Right? So we're getting ready for heaven. We're preparing for heaven. And, and when the apostle John in the book of Revelation, when he looked into heaven, remember, he sees people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation around the throne worshiping God. Which means there's going to be color in heaven. When we leave this earth, we will leave our sins behind, but our skin tone will go with us. Because there's going to be diversity in heaven. Because diversity is beautiful. And there will be a beautiful diversity in heaven. And if that is the case, we have to tie heaven into the present day. And if that is the case, if this is the kingdom of God on earth, right? expanding, then church should be a bag of Skittles, right? I mean, you should come in here and taste the rainbow, all right? You should. I know sometimes, you know, our church, we have some diversity, but we, we more resemble like a Justin Bieber concert. People see us walking in on Sundays like, man, Justin Bieber must be there, you know? Whatever it is. We, we have some diversity to work on here, and we get that, okay? But the church should be a bag of Skittles. People should walk in and see men, women, black, white, you know what I'm saying? Rich, poor, dog people, cat people, everyone, you know, holding hands, worshiping around a throne. They should see it. A great diversity. And there should be no like us versus them mentality. No insider outsider mentality. No cold shoulders, no high school stuff, you know. None of that kind of stuff. Will you sign my yearbook? Everyone should sign everyone's yearbook in a church, right? It should be that way. And that means this we should strive for diversity. There should be no us versus them. And listen, there shouldn't be any us versus them on Facebook either. Oh, he's going to Facebook. I'm going to Facebook. Because a lot of people, they don't say nothing, and they go on Facebook, and it's like, all this verbal anger comes out. It's like, dude, every time a black man gets shot, can we not post all lives matter? Can we just grieve for a second? God hasn't called you to stir the pot. He's called you to be a peacemaker. So we can stop protesting the NFL protest, okay? We can stop. 
We can strive for a little bit of empathy. I think the two biggest groups right now that need empathy are minorities and police officers. I can't imagine a more difficult position to be in if you're one of those two groups of people. We ought to be peacemakers. We ought to be coming to the table and seeking reconciliation, not throwing grenades. Because racism in any form is actually, it's a denial of the gospel. Do you realize that? Racism in any form is a denial of the gospel. Now, I'm not, I'm just making, I'm not making stuff up here, okay? You know, as a preaching point. This is from the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, you may recall this. The Apostle Paul is in the city of Galatia, and Peter comes. So Peter shows up. He's eating with the Gentiles. They're, they're drinking sweet tea. They're eating pulled pork sandwiches, you know, shrimp kebabs. He's enjoying himself. He's being encultured. It's a good thing. What happens, though, is some Jewish people come from Jerusalem, and they don't mix with those kind of people. And so what happens is, is Peter draws back and unfriends all of his uh, Gentile friends on Facebook. He does. And he stops associating with Gentiles. And Peter has to be confronted by Paul. Paul gets up in Peter's face and says this, When I saw that Peter's conduct and the other Jews was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's a strong statement. He said, listen, dude, Peter, you are not in accordance with the truth of the gospel. Now, listen, let me ask you a question. Time out. Let's hit the brakes, okay? Was Peter denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Was he denying the sinlessness of Jesus Christ? Was Peter denying that, that Jesus was God? Was, was he denying the virgin birth, any cardinal doctrine? No. We think, well, how in the world was Peter denying the truth of the gospel? The answer is this. By not eating with Gentiles, this is what Peter was saying. Simple faith in Jesus isn't enough. You need to do something more to be acceptable with God and with me with the in crowd, with the real Christians. You need to take on my ethnicity, my cultural preferences, my dietary restrictions, the way that I dress, the fact that I don't have a TV, the fact that I only watch PG-13, whatever your criteria is, your list, when you add that to the gospel, it's heresy. And Peter was saying, listen, Gentiles, you know, I wish I could let you into the kingdom, but simple faith in Jesus isn't enough, Okay. That's what Peter was communicating. And so Paul gets up in his face and says, you are not in accordance with the gospel. And so every time we actually discriminate against people, if it's their gender, their color, their tax bracket, it's all right here in this current series. Whenever we do that, we're falling into like practical heresy, practical atheism is what we're falling into biblically. And I know some people are like, this sounds like social gospel, you know? This sounds like you're, you're preaching a social gospel, Jeff. Is that the, Listen, the social gospel is a real thing. It's in the Bible. I know we think because of our present-day culture that the gospel is only vertical, and it only deals with our sins before God. But listen, the Bible is clear. If the gospel does not impact your everyday life, it does not, if it doesn't impact your daily grind, and you haven't believed it. That's what the Bible says. I mean, 1 John says this. If anyone says, I love God, I've got the doctrine down, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, not, who has seen cannot love God who he hasn't seen. He's like, listen, if you don't love the people that are in your life that you can see, how in the world are you going to claim to be a Christian? 
And so the, the Bible does teach there is such a thing as a social gospel that it's the way the true biblical gospel flushes out in your everyday life, okay? And so if your faith hasn't changed you, then your faith hasn't saved you, right? Amen? And I know this is important to know because we live in a day of what I call compartmentalized Tupperware Christianity. Seriously, we live in a day of Tupperware Christianity. Everyone's got their compartmentalized view. And so, you know, this is actually true with people that know a ton of Bible verses, they're extremely narrow over here. You've got to believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection, and you better not get any works in there. It better be by faith alone. They have like this super narrow criteria of doctrine, creationism, all this stuff. And then over here, with their political views and how they spend their money and who they date, it's like completely detached. It's like a different compartment. It's like I read Jesus for salvation and I read this guy for politics. It's like, what? What? Are you serious? It's like it's, it's compartmentalized Christianity, and we hold views sometimes that are completely diametrically opposed to Jesus. It's like you say you believe in Jesus over here, and you insist on this really narrow way of believing. But when you shift gears and start talking about this other area, you leave the Bible behind, bro, and you pick up another book of an expert on that. This is the expert on religion, Jesus, and this is the expert on this. Now, all of life is religious, friends. All of life. You cannot escape religion. You are always worshiping. 24-7, no matter what you're doing, you're worshiping. Worship is not something you do for an hour on Sunday. It's the rest of your week. That's worship. Religion is one area of your life that you cannot opt out of. I don't want to receive any more phone calls. You can't do that with worship. There is no blacklist, bro. And so what you do Monday to Saturday is your worship, right? Amen? So we can't take our little Tupperware and be like, here's my Jesus beliefs over here, and then here's my political views. You it doesn't work that way. Can't get there from here. That's detachment. Again, it's hatred. Because you're detaching your views of life from Jesus. And so racism is heresy. Racism is heresy. And that is why Paul, he gets up in Peter's face to stop it. In fact, Paul, do you know what eventually got Paul arrested in the book of Acts? Shout out if you know. Anyone know? This stumped me the first time I heard it. He finally gets arrested in the book of Acts for bringing Gentiles to church. That's why he gets arrested. Paul has a friend from, from Ephesus. He, he, he's a non-Jew. His name's Trophimus. It's an easy name to remember, Trophimus. You know? The guy must have been like a stud in Little League. He won so many trophies. You know, I don't know. He came, you know, he came home with another MVP trophy, and his dad looked over his mom and said, you know what, he is such a stellar athlete, I don't think we should call him Billy Mel anymore. We should call him Trophimus, you know? Trophimus, eat your pancakes, right? Because he was amazing, and once he got saved, he became an amazing FCA speaker. He was, he was off the chain, man. So Trophimus gets saved, hangs out with Paul, and Paul says, you know what, I want Trophimus to have a place at the table. I want Trophimus to be able to experience the same things that I experience when I go to church and to worship the way that I worship. And so Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles into the church temple. And he gets arrested and sent to Rome for bringing unbelievers to church because the, the Jews didn't like that. And so Paul got arrested just for pushing, pushing, pushing a little bit more for racial equality. That's why he gets arrested. And, and I think to myself, where is that kind of boldness today? Especially in the church. Where is the prophetic courage to stand up and be counted? And to take stands for things that may cost you tithing dollars in your church. Where's the courage? And I'm thankful that this church has the courage to do that. But I wish more churches had the courage to do that. To push for racial 
equality and, and just, to, just to talk about these things, have some empathy instead of pushing away from the table and, and lobbing grenades. It, it's just, it, it should not be the case in the church of Jesus Christ. But by challenging the status quo, Paul was following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ himself. Because Jesus, he did one thing. He never, never, never accepted the status quo. He always pushed against the grain for a more biblical and Christian and, and Christ-like and godly response to conflict. And that is why when you read through the Gospels, you'll discover something very interesting. Jesus only gets angry at one type of situation, only one. And it's not the sin of unbelievers. Jesus never tells Peter, hey man, you won't believe this. They built another strip club down on 4th Street. Can you believe this? Galilee's going to hell in a handbasket, man. I tell you what. <laughs> he never does that. Jesus only gets angry. He only gets upset when he witnessed religious people oppressing and marginalizing other people. Whether it's women, whether it's minorities. When you turn the Bible into a bully club, that makes Jesus very angry. And that is why you never read about Jesus getting angry at a sinner. He, excuse me, at an unbeliever. He only gets angry at the sin of religious folks who are marginalizing and oppressing others. And that's why Jesus did something twice in his ministry. It, it kind of like it blows us away because we read it and we can't quite believe it. We're like, I can't believe Jesus did that. He goes into the temple, right? And he makes this whip and drives out people from the temple. He drives out money changers, right? And people that sold doves and goats and animals, he drives them out of the temple. And when we read that, we think of this. We think of Jesus going in and cleansing you know, the pulpit and getting the rabbi out and saying, stop teaching the word of God. You're not teaching good enough or clear enough. That's not what he did. Because you know why? The money changers and the animals weren't inside the teaching part of the temple. They weren't there. That was the holy place. Animals would never be allowed in there. Now, the animals... And the money changers were in a different part of the temple, a place called the Court of the Gentiles. There were different wings in the temple. And you can see here, the Court of the Gentiles is that outer court there. It's a huge court which tells you how God feels about Gentiles coming to church, unbelievers coming to church. Look how much bigger that is from the rest of the temple complex. God cares that much about evangelism. The court of the Gentiles would be where a non-Jew, or what the Bible calls a seeker, a God-fearer, would come in to hear and begin to be introduced to the things of God. That's where they'd sit, and that's where they put the animals, and that's where they put the money changers. And so Jesus goes in and clears that part out. Because think about it, if you were a non-Jew, if you were Trophimus, and you go into the court of the Gentiles, and there's like, how are you going to sing praise songs to God when there's some dude over here arguing over the price of a goat? He's arguing, you're trying to sing praise songs, you know? How are you going to hear the word of God when there's like this thick stench of animal poop in the air? How, seriously, how are you going to worship God? How are you going to hear the word of God without thinking that stinks, you know? I tell you what, have you been to the circus before? Circus? I've been to the circus many times. The fair, even. You've been to the fair? I've never been to the fair or the circus and thought, this is such a worshipful environment. Wow. Surely God must be in this place. I never thought that. But if you were a non-Jew going to church in those days, the court of the Gentiles, you couldn't hear. It stunk. You were a second-class citizen. You were the last person that was thought of. 
And so it's no wonder that Judaism never caught on and never spread like wildfire like it was supposed to when they treated people this way. And that is why Jesus, he goes into the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end, and he makes a whip because they had turned the court of the Gentiles into a farmer's market. And he says, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Racism made Jesus very angry. And I'm going to close with this because the reason that racism makes Jesus, God, Paul, it should make Christians so upset is because you're denying the very essence of the gospel. I mean, to tell someone that you don't belong, that you're a second-class kingdom citizen because you don't share my gender, my skin color, my tax bracket, whatever it is, to say that you don't deserve the same privileges that I do is a denial of the gospel because the gospel clearly teaches we're all in the same boat, friends. We're all in the same boat. We're all, we're all cursed people, believe it or not. You may not be a descendant of Ham, and you may not be cursed through Canaan and Ham, okay? But we're all cursed members of the human race through Adam, our father, okay? So we're all in the same boat, Right? No one should ever say, hey man, you don't belong, you're not like me. No, they are like you. They're cursed and they're hellbound. That's, that's the state of every single person when they're born in this world. We sin, we fall short of the glory of God, and we're under a curse for it. So basically, they're just like you, okay? But if you say, no, you can't get in because you're not like me, oh yeah, I am like you. I'm cursed and I'm hellbound. To say that is a denial of the gospel because we are naturally outsiders. Men are naturally God's enemies. That's what the Bible teaches. But Jesus came to turn his enemies into his brothers. He came as an insider to deliver the outsiders by himself becoming an outsider. And that is why on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you for Saken me. In other words, my God, my God, why have you become detached from me? All, all the anger towards our sin placed upon Jesus on that cross. And Jesus became an outsider to make us insiders. And therefore, if we ever hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality, we've missed it. We've missed it. And I know you know these things. It's just a refresher this morning to remember to always, always, always be a peacemaker. When you feel that temptation to lob a grenade, don't. Remember the cross. Cultivate love. Cultivate understanding. And as we do so, we'll reflect a greater picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. A diversity that the government should be coming to the church and be saying, how in the world do you make this happen? They should be coming to us for answers. I think churches should be the best-run organizations, the most diverse organizations. And yet, so often we're lagging behind. It shouldn't be the case. Let's pray and ask God to make that the case.